Welcome to the podcast of ideas. The recording you're about to hear is from the Academy of Ideas book club, which looked at The Plague by Albert Camus on Thursday the 30th of April. David Bowden gave the introduction and in the chair is Jeff Kidder. As this was a Zoom meeting, we apologise for the audio being a little bit off in places. Okay, so welcome all to the uh, Academy of Ideas book club uh, to discuss The Plague. The people here who joined us last time for Animal Farm, people who've come along just for this discussion, and also welcome people from all around the world, which is one of the merits of doing these discussions on Zoom, that people don't have to be there in person. So we're delighted to have people from many different countries joining us. Our speaker is David Bowden. David is an associate fellow of the Academy of Ideas, organised in the past debates on literature, culture, and many other things at the Battle of Ideas Festival. He's also Global Communications Manager at PwC, where he manages strategic communications across PwC's global network. And we're very delighted that Dave will give, uh, give an introduction of about 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll just open it up uh, for questions and, uh, and, and discussions. The Plague by Albert Camus uh, is very much a book of the moment. Obviously, we're living through a pandemic. Uh, the book itself is quite hard to get hold of. It's being reviewed all over the place. I've read various reviews which actually have very little to do with the book, but a lot to do with what the authors want to, spe- want to talk about. Uh, and, and it's a real reference at the moment, as well as being a great work of literature. So it's something we're, we're very uh, delighted to be discussing. Finally, the Academy of Ideas has had quite a few meetings on a whole number of subjects since we started the lockdown um, uh, on the economy, on the arts, uh, we've got a, a, another one coming up on experts in a couple of weeks. But if you go to academyofideas.org.uk, uh, all the details are there. And if you go to academyofideas.org.uk donate, we're working through the lockdown. We're not furloughed. But if anybody can give us the price of a pint or a bit more to help us get through this period, it's very much appreciated. Uh, but we very much appreciate you all coming along to this discussion. So without any further ado... I will unmute Dave and hopefully be able to spotlight him and and, and we'll get going. Dave, floor is yours. Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me here to discuss this book and the opportunity to revisit the work of Albert Camus, who I often think is one of the great misunderstood writers in the popular imagination. I'm sorry that I was unable to make the book club on George Orwell's Animal Farm, which is a great companion piece to The Plague. I did enjoy catching up on the podcast, however, and it made me smile that someone raised the example of vegans citing Animal Farm and how that felt like being shoved in the face with literalism. And now we are discussing a similar allegorical book where the literal reading is not just staring us in the face, but is coming around to lock us into our own homes for good measure. And it's especially important to remember this, given the plague suddenly seems to speak literally and with almost unerring accuracy to our time. Reading it alongside social media almost feels like real-time reportage. In fact, I could open almost any page at random and speak for an hour on its resonance today. And we could reflect on the fact that until recently, for most contemporary Western readers, it would not have been hard to read this book metaphorically rather than literally. So that's why it's particularly important here to acknowledge the allegorical component up front and understand the very specific context it was written in. So for background, The Plague was written and published in 1947 by Camus as a reflection on his own experience 
as an active member of the French resistance. It is also a pointed critique of what he held as the amnesia of the post-war national narrative, one which overplayed the size and impact of the French resistance, downplayed the scale of collaboration and support for the Vichy government, and was being played out through waves of bitter reprisals and valorization of some dubious heroes. And it is worth flagging that Camus was justly held as one of the great intellectual heroes of the resistance, as editor of the underground journal Combat. Three of the main characters of the novel are largely seen as partly self-autobiographical versions of Camus' own experiences. Most obviously, there is the journalist Raymond Rambert, who views himself initially as an outsider to the struggle and victim of circumstance, but who is eventually inspired to stay and join the fight through the bravery of others. This mirrors Camus, who made the reverse journey from Iran, which is a real place, in his native Algeria, to occupied France in 1942. We should note that he made the journey not out of a noble desire to join the resistance, but for the sake of his health, having been diagnosed with tuberculosis some years earlier. Like Rambert, he initially attempted to flee after experiencing the grim realities of occupied life. We can also see elements of Camus in the characters of Dr. Roux and Jean Tarou. Dr. Roux is a faithless man, and often a faithless doctor, who views his role as effectively pointless against the march of the plague. Like Camus, he does the right thing, but he is racked by a scepticism and doubt about how effective his resistance is throughout the novel. This instinct is also counterposed to the more overtly brave Jean Tarou, who sees a clear moral purpose in joining the fight, despite both the enormous personal risk and his equally clear-eyed view of limited chances of success. He rebels on a moral level. Yet given his relatively advanced age and poor health, and worth remembering here of Camus' own experience with tuberculosis, he invites the question of whether his sacrifice can be equated with those who are younger or with families to support. The philosophical exploration of the choices these three characters make, and why they do so, would make this book notable in itself. Yet what typically elevates this book to greatness for many readers is Camus' extraordinary dismissal of the traditional language of heroes and villains, and his sympathy for those who did not join the struggle. To quote from the text, This is why the health teams that were organised thanks to Tarou should be viewed with satisfaction, but also objectivity. So the narrator will not become an over-eloquent eulogist of a determination and heroism to which he attaches only a moderate degree of importance. But he will continue to be the historian of the heartaches and soul-searching that the plague imposed on all our fellow citizens. Obviously, we can discuss at more length how much we agree with Camus' assessment of true heroism. Here it is worth reflecting that the elevation of the meek figure of Joseph Grant as the true hero of the book, as argued by Tony Jutt, prefigures the arguments of Hannah Arendt on totalitarianism and evil. But it is this compassionate, almost counterintuitive viewpoint about humanity's fundamental goodness and the striking way in which he treats the population of Iran as a mass, but not an unthinking herd, which gives the plague such a unique perspective to the modern reader. For those who perhaps do not know more about Camus beyond the outsider, 
or as the crude caricature of the chain-smoking, miserable French existentialist philosopher, a term he always rejected, then this stirring humanist defence of action in the face of overwhelming odds is actually rather shocking. And it's always important with Camus to recognise that he is often consciously writing against a very specific backdrop, rooted in its specific circumstances and politics of post-war France, rather necessarily than in the abstracted theoretical terms of Sartre and other French philosophers we associate with him. That's why, to return to Orwell's Animal Farm, it's also an allegory that starts to weaken as it moves away from its specific target. And this has been a major challenge of the plague to the modern reader, as we move further and further away from the events being described. Simply to treat it as a parable around fascism opens it up to the criticisms made by Simone de Beauvoir and many other contemporary critics of attempting to treat fascism as a natural rather than man-made political phenomena. And certainly if we read it in that way, those criticisms, I think, are, are fair. Similarly, to treat it as an allegory around some contemporary political concerns, of the rational scientists against the irrational masses, or of how we respond to ecological threats of climate change, or even immigration, or indeed how this should inform lockdown policy around COVID-19, is something we should be deeply wary of. For Camus, he is here less interested in the cause of a particular suffering or the political nature of fascism. Instead, he is interested in how humanity responds to external existential threats. It's worth noting that one of Camus' biggest influence is in, for this book was Moby Dick and was inspired by its interest in how we deal with the philosophical question of evil. And for that reason, why, unlike Animal Farm, the literal reading of the book can speak so powerfully to our present condition. As can be evidenced by the use of an epigraph from Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, a book that also provides a substantial model for the book's structure. Disease and pestilence are far from an abstract metaphor for Camus and his audience. Indeed, as he reminds us in one of the book's most famous passages, pestilence is in fact very common, but we find it hard to believe in a pestilence when it descends upon us. There have been as many plagues in the world as there have been wars, yet plagues and wars always find people equally unprepared. Now, I've heard more than one eminent thinker quote that over recent weeks as a damning indictment of governmental preparedness, or perhaps even an indictment of human arrogance in the face of disease. We should be clear that that kind of smug and facile reading is one that Camus would vigorously reject. In fact, his point throughout all of his work is that being psychologically unprepared for these existential threats that expose our impotence is almost a necessary condition of existence. Indeed, in the character of the sociopathic murderer Massot in The Outsider, deliberately mentioned in passing here, Camus has already explored the dangerous impl implications for simply accepting the blind absurdity and meaninglessness of existence. Yet it's the necessity of humanity finding a way to respond to and res rebel against the absurd that most animates Camus. And he identifies this desire to ascribe a kind of moral meaning to the plague as one of the most insidious enemies of finding an effective moral response. As he makes clear through the character of Taru, giving in to that impulse is the one truly unforgivable one. 
To accept that humanity deserves the plague is to accept the logic of it. And while that fatalistic argument is mostly most clearly articulated by the priest Panelu, as well as the petty criminal Cotard, we should also note that it is actually the institutions of secular rational society that give into that impulse first. Among the many brilliant passages here are the ones that detail the initial reactions to the plague. The state which engages in comical bureaucratic manoeuvring over what to call it. And then later, to quote from Teru's journal, the newspapers and the authorities are engaged in a battle of wits with the plague. They think that they are scoring points against it because 130 is a lower figure than 910. And later, in a wonderfully painful passage that forms the background to Panelou's sermon, in two or three quarters full church, it is pointed out that public attitudes towards formal religion have been largely abandoned in favour of superstitions, prophecies, and to quote, bizarre calculations involving the number of the year, the number of deaths, and the number of months already spent under the plague. Others establish comparisons with the great plagues of history and, by means of no less peculiar calculations, claim to extract information relative to the present outbreak. It's easy to laugh at that description, but all of us have been playing that game with varying degrees of sophistication over recent weeks. Whether it is embracing an optimistic Swedish model or seizing on any signs that the UK or the US are uniquely reckless, we are often driven less, perhaps, by scientific impulse than we are a need for a reassurance that we, at least, are the ones who see the world and the risks related to it clearly. Yet Camus is constantly reminding us, through Rue's own doubts, of our own vulnerability to delusion. And I think if anything can be classed as an important message to take away from Camus in relation to COVID-19, it is to seize the opportunity for intellectual bravery and honesty. Obviously, that does mean asking questions about how it happened, why it happened, and how it can be avoided. Certainly, we should explore the questions of social inequality that are brought to life by the realities of crisis um, and plague. We should celebrate the heroes on the front line, as many will be doing tonight, as well as honour the victims. But do not use them to minimise the very real suffering, materially and spiritually, caused by those who are fighting the battle in a different way. Do not forget either of these things or the sacrifices made by those who surrender their normal lives. Do not be ashamed for seeking a resumption of real life and the ability to exist freely in the world, even if it is for something as mundane, uh, an example which is used in the book, as a new film at the cinema, or to start a new love affair. Our existence is as much social and imaginative to Camus and sensual, as well as it is for mere survival and continuation of the species. But above all else, what Camus thinks we should, we would, should not accept the notion that there is a moral lesson in the plague itself. Humanity is not the plague. Humanity does not deserve the plague, we must not accept plagues as a fact of life. There are moral judgments to be made, but only in how we choose to respond to the crisis. And how we respond must be taken up in its own terms, not merely out of reference to habit or tradition or previous experience. And it is only through that bravery and honesty, from throwing off the shackles of active fatalism, 
can humanity truly learn from its suffering and not forget the lessons of the plague? As he reminds us at the end, I think in a slightly often misunderstood passage, some form of plague and pestilence will always return to threaten humanity. But we should remember, according to Camus, that we are never destined to either succumb to it or overcome the risk. The chance and how we respond to it is purely in our hands. Okay, thanks very much, Dave. There's lots of questions raised there. There's lots of questions in the book about the allegory, about what's happening today, about Camus itself and the, the times in, in which he was writing. And people are welcome to raise all those things, ask questions. I'll bring Dave in to help clarify and hopefully reinforce some of the points he was making in his introduction. So firstly, Rosie. Yes, thank you, uh, Dave. That was a really good um, discussion of it. One of the things that seems to be a theme throughout the book is inability to, for people to give voice to real feelings or love um, or even to use words in the correct way. So there is a, um, a, a passage where um, at the beginning when the plague is announced and, and the lovers are separated and they start to become um, a particularly noticeable um, community in terms of their separation and their sense of loss of their loved ones, that they can't quite express how that is for themselves to others and be understood. The others respond in quite a, you know, a trite way. Um, and then, you know, even when they, when they're reunited at the end, which is a really, it's really lovely and, and the sense of lovers walking together and, uh, visiting old haunts and things within, um, Oren. Um, but even then there's a sense of language sort of lack something there. Um, and then obviously the theme of Grand trying to, uh, trying to start writing a book. So I just I just wondered what what your thoughts are about that the the sort of inability really to to have a, to find a language that makes sense in that situation. Ironically, whilst you know you're writing a book <laughs> to to express all of this. Thank you, Rosie. Anne. I thought it was a really brilliant introduction. Really really excellent um, and really thought-provoking. Um, and I really wanted to ask Dave a question about this um, analogy that is so often drawn with um, the plague, between the plague and the occupation of France, because that was very much, I think, the way that so many people explain the plague. And it was certainly the way that I was introduced to it when I was a student and then I read it again a couple of years ago and it really troubled me, the analogy, precisely for the reason that, that you said, that you have this thing, the plague arising out of nowhere and clearly political occupations and, and politics doesn't happen out of nowhere. And so I was struck recently reading the Sartre um, criticised Camus um, for, for being an idiot if he thought that fascism arrived in that way, like an infection. And um, so I've been much more taken 
recently with the notion that the, the plague is not so much an analogy about Nazi-occupied France and, and that sense of politics, um, but much more what I think very much the rest of Camus' writing is about, which is more of an analogy about life and how we shape ourselves in response to the kind of shit happens elements of, of life, that we are cast into circumstances that are not our, of our own making. And sometimes we, we disappoint ourselves, you know, disappointed in other people. And sometimes we rise to the challenge. But that actually um, what Camus is really getting at is much more the sense of the human and humanistic response in the face of adversity and that um, what his response to Sartre, I think, would have been is, you got it wrong, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is something very different about life. And I was wondering what you thought of that, Dave, and if that was a view that, that you'd come across in your reading on it. Thank you. So I'm going to take a couple more. Thanks, Anne. So I've got a couple more. Sharmini, would you like to speak? Yes, hi. Um, no, I just want to say I did agree with what uh, with Anne's feelings that it wasn't a direct um, allegory with Nazi Germany. I mean, he wrote it during that time, and there are lots of aspects of the book where one gets a sense um, of um, of that kind of um, period. You know, when he talks about um, the bureaucracy, the functionaries, how everything was just you know. Um, ticked off and statistics and all that sort of stuff is very much reminds one of the way the Nazi sort of functionaries operated, um, the red tape and so on. And, and then also just the burying, the mass graves and just the throwing of bodies all brings to mind some of that um, sense of the period he, he was living through. But I, I agree that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be a comment necessarily on on nazism but more about humanity i mean what it is to be human the meaning of um human life in a sense um and um you know the the, the fact uh rue Ru, i think dr rue brings it out he just says you you have to do what you have to do because life is a, to live is uh, to, to have a life or human life is to is to struggle sometimes, is just to sort of live and to struggle against insurmountable sort of like odds, you know. So in one sense, it feels kind of a little bit bleak because he's not kind of making all these rosy pictures. He's just saying, we just have to get on with it. We have to fight. We have to struggle um, and find a meaning in that sort of living. So, yeah, I just wanted to sort of agree with Anne on that one. Thank you, Sharmini. So I'll, I'll bring Pamela in in a minute. Then I'll get Dave to come back with some some comments, and then we'll uh, go out for more uh, contributions. Hi, I feel like I'm just going to um, agree with what Anne said as well. Um, I hadn't really come across the text before, um, and I only just managed to read it in time, so I didn't look at any of the background. Um, but I have read some Camus before, and I definitely got a myth of Sisyphus kind of feel about it, uh, particularly right at the end, 
when um, Rue is considering that uh, the plague could live on in people's bedsheets and wardrobes and it could just come back again. And that idea of Sisyphus kind of pushing the boulder up the hill for it to just fall back down again. Um, and just this idea that, you know, the absurdity aspect of existentialism and that despite the fact that uh, there is always going to be this struggle and it's going to be endless. And I can't remember where it was. Um, there was a point where they talked about the play, um, about being a never-ending defeat, I think it was called. Um, and yeah, so I just see it much more, or I read it to be more just about life in general and the human condition, but also just what matters. Love seems to come up quite a lot within it. And the very start where he was describing Iran as this kind of bleak and soulless place where it was just about doing business. And he said quite a bit about habit. Um, and just, I suppose, as they go through the plague, they're, when they realize with, without being able to see their loved ones what really matters. Um, and I thought it was just maybe just trying to say something about what really matters in life. And, you know, if not now, when? So, you know, just trying to make the most out of what you have and the relationships you have rather than, um, well, yeah, and that's all I, all I want to say. That's, I agree with Anne. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pamela. David, do you want to come back on some things and then? On particularly on Anne's point and a couple of ones, it's really important not to, to see the point that he's making as a kind of political one. He's not interested kind of on the level of political critique. He's, he's interested in the question of really how humanity deals with the question of evil. Um, it's it's really more kind of how do you live with a world where fascism has occurred, where Nazism has occurred? What does that do to our sort of sense of moral goodness? And in many ways, he, he finds actually as part of the kind of the pattern of, of uh, suffering that humanity has to forever be uh, put through when it deals with something kind of greater to itself that seems to challenge any notions of um, kind of good and kind of morality. And I think that's what is important about Panelou's response, because I think that um, at that point, actually, uh, you know, the, the church has kind of lost its kind of moral authority. Um, you know, people have collapsed into this world of superstition and the priest has to go off and do this kind of um, speech to try and reclaim that authority. And actually his first half of that speech is probably closer to Camus' own worldview, um, you know, in terms of actually saying you have to reject it. But then he sort of says, but, you know, kind of essentially as someone who believes in God, I can't believe that. I have to believe that God has visited upon this, you know, for a particular um, for a reason and a kind of sense of uh, purpose to that and then has to follow that around and that's really what Camus is kind of most interested in um, is the idea that uh, when we're kind of facing a sort of hopelessness when it feels like a sort of sense of um, action doesn't really do anything how do we maintain that sort of sense of humanity that sort of sense of trying to build a kind of new morality and a sort of new sense um, by rebelling against the order and so his his interest is in exploring the kind of nature of rebellion and that's why it's not just a kind of the plague is a handy metaphor for that you know humanity will always face these enormous threats um and challenges um you know it's it's kind of you know nazism kind of um today but actually it's it's more what do we do once we've defeated that um how do we move past that point and not just carry on relitigating the same arguments of who were the heroes who were the villains of that era we have to we have to move past that um and you know that's why the you know the, the really important comparison point is 
is kind of Moby Dick, um, you know, is in terms of that sort of sense of humanity, um, trying to face something that is not human um, and how that, that warps us, that changes us, that reveals things about ourselves, but it doesn't really tell you anything about the, the thing you're pursuing. It only really tells you about humanity itself. Thanks, Dave. I'll bring in, I'll just go in order that people have raised their hands. So, uh, Jacob. Thanks for that, Dave. It was very, very helpful. The, the thing that struck me again rereading this now was the, um, and this goes to some degree, I think, to why Sartre and lots of the others, the other intellectuals really disliked Camus generally, but especially this term that happened around the rebel and the plague, um, was that the, there's a line towards the end that really struck me as he said, uh, what, uh, whatever meaning there was in this exile and desire for reunion, Rue had no idea. It did not matter whether these things have a meaning or not, but the one must simply see what response there was to the hopes of mankind. And there was something, especially at the start of pandemic here, when we saw all of these uh, people saying, oh, this is going to be the moment that socialism happens, or this means the end of neoliberalism or whatever it was, where there's a sort of picture of the world that was certainly shared by Sartre and his contemporaries that was very much, if there will be just big events that will happen and that will just change the course of the world. Whereas Camus' vision is much more, well, things will sort of happen as a result of people working things out piece by piece. Um, and that's why uh, perhaps for today, there's a sort of another bit a little earlier on when Camus says something to the effect of they're living in times where people had no past and no future, i.e. they were dispossessed of those when you look to the big sort of revolutionary moments of the past, you think of times that are like structured in a modernist sense by grand ideas and, and Camus already onto the fact that that sort of crumbled away. And that's why this kind of muddling through, as it were, but just trying to show out the best of what there are in humans or the worst or whatever. But that's more of a kind of appropriate situation for now where we have no idea really how this is going to pan out because precisely it's not structured by any sort of big political ideologies or mass social movements and when people say oh yes some volunteer groups around the UK is going to be the start of a new democratic revival or something like that that's like the hollowness in it in fact all we can do in this moment is hope that there will be um, those little bits of muddling through or working it out and that's what I really took away from this rereading it. Thank you. Uh, Jenny? There were, there were two things that I, I thought were very interesting following on from some of the points that people have made already. The one was the um, if you like, the discussion between Rambert and the doctor um, about the whole question of um, dying or, or living for ideas, you know, the abstract um, ideas, or dying for love. And, and, and the doctor very often supports Rambert in his desire um, you know, to, to, to make an escape, you know, on, for love. And it, it, it was quite telling that when Rambert actually decides that he's not going to go, and the whole question of heroism comes up, he says it's not heroism, it's just decency. Um, and all along, um, people are, are tending to sort of minimize the heroism part of it and just talk about necessity and decency in responding to things. The other, the other sort of thread of that was in the discussion about um, vice and ignorance and goodness um, and understanding, which seemed to again link up with that idea that 
you weren't talking about heroism or, or rising um, above it. You were simply talking about understanding the problem and dealing with it. And out of that, you could talk about goodness or out of ignorance, all sorts of, of bad things would happen. And just one last quick comment on sort of today. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting the way um, he portrayed the frontline workers in that situation um, were completely immersed, you know, in the task of actually dealing with this pandemic. And the rest of the population just seemed to be in exile. And that's, you know, when they're talking about, um, you know, how, how people are only in living in the present with no real link to the past or hope for the future. Thank you very much, Jenny. Um, Michael. Um, well, yes, just following on um, from Jenny, I should say, I read this when I was a student, that was a different century, you know, ago, uh, and then I'm rereading it and I've got about 50 pages to go. And I don't remember very much at all from the first time I read it, but I, I, I find it, the narrator's voice is slightly emotionally contained. The book is, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, if, if a plague book was written today, irrespective of, of coronavirus, actually Stephen King has written one and I've not read it and um, I'm sure it's very good because Stephen King he actually is a good writer but the Camus book is thin on dialogue there is I feel a kind of emotional some degree of emotional containment um, which in some respects is refreshing from what you tend to get in contemporary novels and it's following i wrote the word down before jenny jenny talked about decency there and i wrote the word dignity down because the way that um Camus characters by and large handle the situation if he's praising anything it's it's the dignified response of human beings to um the situation um now, I've got 50 pages or so to go, so I could be wrong, but there doesn't, you know, nobody speaks about a conspiracy. Nobody runs around blaming the authorities for neglect or it's all their own fault. There's a kind of seems to be a degree of acceptance by, by the population of, of Iran. Um, if, what if a plague novel were written today? How would, I think it would be you know, emotionally uncontained. We'd have these obvious heroes and we'd have, you know, depends who writes it, of course. But I think you get a sense of the novel of the time um, in 1947. I mean, Camus, whether or not it's an allegory about fascism or not, but you can tell that this author has lived through a time and a place where you have to be careful about what you say and what you do. There's a, there is an overwhelming sense of an oppressive atmosphere about the book. Um, when you get, I, I get that anyway, right from the very beginning when the narrator talks about the circumstances. So it has, I think it has a great, great atmosphere. Um, I, do, I do find it, you know, I, I'm a read modern novels, I do find it in, in a sense quite emotionally contained. But that, I say, is a refreshing 
different to to what we're usually getting and of course the way i think outside of literature the response in britain i think there's a lot of god knows on social media emotional diarrhea etc i mean it's, i shouldn't be say things like that but you know there's a there's a sense in which people everybody's shouting from the rooftops about what we should do about coronavirus and uh the way that people respond in camels camels world to some extent is preferable yeah thank you very much michael that's a, that's a very interesting points people are making and also on the chat which i won't read them all out but uh, very interesting points about comparisons with to and, and non-comparisons with today and in the past on on different aspects of uh, of the book i'll take i'll take joel and then i'll go back to dave and then i'll come out again um I, yeah that was really interesting hearing your thoughts and it's interesting about the containment thing because i hadn't thought of it like that but actually i can recognize that and i think it makes it all the more powerful um just in terms of the allegorical stuff i was thinking about um the post-war period and um, there was something that Tony just mentioned in the afterword and that came up in a another book I'd read about that time which was really about the kind of settling of scores after the war the you know the um, particularly with people who were perceived as kind of collaborators and I sort of felt that there was a, a theme throughout the book about the choices that people could make, but also the things that were sort of almost a bit beyond them. Um, and there was a there was a page where where he was thinking about Rambo, you know, and that people were acting as if they were free men and could still choose. But in reality, at that moment in the middle, that the plague had covered everything and there were no longer any individual destinies, but a collective history that was the plague. And I, I kind of got this feeling that this tension between sort of choosing and not being able to choose, that loss of freedom was something that ran all the way through. And, uh, you know, that sense with Rambert eventually chooses to stay, even though he's kind of been longing to go. And it's quite sort of, in, in, you know, again, in a quite a contained way. But this sense that for a lot of people, that thing about choice was that they could do no other. Than the, than the decent thing that Jenny mentioned, this sort of decency. And um, something else that you mentioned, Dave, was the sort of, I suppose, the sort of pain and sort of horror of it. And two of the chapters that I found most haunting elements were, one was about the burials, you know, the description of how that kind of mass death process, people went from putting bodies and burying people to eventually, you know, stopping people to go and attending the funerals of their loved ones and they were kept back at the gates and uh you know people were sort of you know just cremated as quickly as possible and something about that sort of efficiency of the time in such a sort of and then the other passage which i thought was you know quite a a sort of horror but kind of brought out this decency and um i think what was the other word that somebody used um I can't remember, something close to that, was when the boy, when the magistrate's boy is dying and they're sort of giving him a serum and that whole process, I mean, it was very moving, but also it was that sort of duality between are they extending his pain, they're trying to do good. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it, there were sort of emotional bits in it, but it was contained in a way that brought it 
to be more powerful and those threads of freedom and where there isn't freedom anymore were really strong too. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Dave, do you want to come back on the... Yeah, there's a um, yeah a lot of interesting uh, points there. I think on the um, comparison to what the sort of plague novel uh, would look like today, I've seen. For me, the most interesting aspect is um, uh, the sort of sense of how much the kind of the media kind of play along with a um, uh, you know, sort of this thing, and actually the sort of sense of Cotard, um, who is the kind of uh, you know a kind of uh, in some sense you know. It, Seeking is a kind of sort of an entrepreneur of kind of tragedy to sign some regard. This kind of man who is who is looking for the kind of opportunity to be presented to him, both materially but also on a on a spiritual and physical level, because he really is the most kind of humanity is you know kind of um, sort of deserves this, and everyone is kind of brought down to the kind of level. He's the man who accepts the logic of the plague the most kind of forcefully, um, and in many ways, I think actually what is striking is how quick people are looking to the sort of the kind of moral explanation of what the plague you know today is and you know where how it may have started what our kind of response may be formed to it and I think that sort of feeds a little bit into some of the points that um Joel was making there because it's interesting that you know science and again this isn't a story of the scientist versus the kind of masses it feels like that at first and with through a modern reading it's difficult not to um uh, assume he might be doing something similar to perhaps the enemy of the people, the Ibsen play. Um, but science has limited impacts about what it can do here. Really, it is, a, you know, it, is, it's all, it can give you a sort of one in three chance, I think, as Rue sets out to kind of, to, of kind of accepting that, you know, there's a high chance you may die through doing this and we can protect you a bit. They, you know, human activity has some kind of power that it can exert over this situation. Um, but in many ways, you also have to accept there is an enormous um, uh, kind of threat to humanity. That's the existential risk of it. Um, and that's why it's so dangerous to, um, to kind of go, oh, humanity is powerless in the face of nature. You have to focus on the activity um, that you are able to do. And it's so powerful, the passages about quarantine, because it's all about humanity and people being cut off from their ability to um, impact upon the world to do anything they just have to sort of hunker down and wait for this kind of plague to pass and for Camus that's the that's the kind of t a cardinal sin that you can't commit you know you, you must rebel against the absurd if you don't rebel against the absurd you become the p passive character of Masseau in The Outsider um, you, you become the person who is unable to take part in society who offers nothing who can commit a callous murder with no concern um, uh, over what happens to you morally um you know you have to rebel against that and find ways of uh, of challenging that and that i'm just in, always being humble and saying you you know that we there are terrible things that may well occur political disasters natural disasters but you know it's when you choose to, to to find a way of doing something different to believe that humanity can be different that's when you're not accepting the kind of fatalism and logic um of that and i think that is the kind of you know, what is so striking, I think, about our response today, it's that endless fixating around, um, uh, you know, what could have been done differently? Whose fault is this? Who has kind of brought this this plague upon us? Um, uh, and, you know, what, you know if, if only the government, you know, if they'd done this or done that at a different time, um, things would have been different. Well, maybe sometimes actually terrible diseases do occur. We should obviously have very serious questions about what the response is to that and the choices that we've made and try to find a, a good response to it. But it's a practical question. It's not a philosophical question, um, how we should respond to um, unexpected events um, on, on, you know, on a kind of policy level. I think that's Camus kind of interest. 
Thanks, Dave. Helen. Um, I think it's interesting, the question about what would a plague novel be like now? Um, I mean, if you read, obviously it was written before the plague, but if you read um, Station Eleven, it's a really anti-human book. That's, it's all about violence and how people are seen as threats and that, you know, it's all about gangs and, you know, people feeling that they can't trust anybody else. And there's none of that in this. And I think that, um, you know, obviously all the books about plagues all just reflect the feeling of the time. And I think, you know, there would be an anti-human aspect to any novel written at this time. That wasn't what I was going to say. I just think it's an interesting thought. Um, I thought the point that Joel made about the, um, uh, the tension in the book between the kind of individual and the collective was really interesting and very, very uh, beautifully explained. And at different stages in the plague and this kind of threat, how different elements of, uh, you know, both individual and collective responses changed. And I thought that, um, you know, that to me is where he really, it's not just that he's got an overarching sort of humanistic message, you know, anti-fatalistic and all of that. It's in his real detail of how he talks about experience of the individual or the collective that he's really good. So early on in the plague, he makes the point that, and I think uh, someone else made this point, that people kind of responded as an individual and thought that their feelings were very special and they couldn't communicate to other people. And they felt very, very kind of isolated in their own misery. Um, but they still did sort of respond individualistically. So people who were yearning to go uh, to leave or had let, were separated from loved ones. I think that sort of sense of individual feeling is very strong and, and, and well expressed. But later on, and I think this is a really brilliant point where things look really, really bleak. He kind of makes the fact that the sort of individual responses become less important and there's this sort of collective resignation um, to the uh, feeling that uh, there is no future. And I think that loss of the sense of future is where the sort of sense of the individual just completely disappears. And then when you get to the end of the book where you know, there's a sense of hope again, the sense of the individual comes back. And I think that whole kind of just playing on that tension in terms of our, our sense of despair or you know, feeling that you're, you're a victim of something outside of yourself, I think is a very, very um, beautiful part of the book and really explains the sort of human response to things, I, th I thought really, really wonderfully. Thank you very much. I'm going to take Claire next. Um, thank, thanks, Jeff. Um, and oh, fantastic contributions uh, from everybody um, so far. Um, so uh, a couple of things maybe to look at things that haven't been commented on. Uh, in response to Michael's sense of it being a contained narrative, which I think is really true. But it's also true that the novel itself talks about narration quite a lot and who's a reliable narrator, who's not a reliable narrator, who you can trust, what kind of storytelling there are and so on and so forth, which I thought was really interesting. I think it's also interesting that the one journalist in the novel at no point is interested in narrating and doesn't tell a story. And that's just, in terms of today, is quite a, just a fascinating because of the controversies around journalism. But we're, it is refreshing to have what is an attempt in a way to give us an objective view, but a recognition that you might not even be able to rely on that. But that, that was interesting. One thing that is confusing, or two things that are confusing, so maybe uh, people can comment on them, is 
on the one hand, uh, I think Sharmini's made the point about the abstraction and other people have said about the horror of the impersonal um, uh, uh, burials uh, and the, 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 uh, the nod to the Nazis in terms of abstraction and people being talked of as human beings talked of as statistics and so on. But it doesn't seem to me to be that straightforward because it's also true that doctor, uh, the doctor is has to remove himself from pity in order to be a doctor. So it's not just straightforwardly arguing that abstractions all the time are negative. Part of being human is an ability to be able to do your job without being emotional. That seemingly, it seems an important thing to, that he's also tried to say. There's that side. One, what, I, but I'm not quite sure what the balance is there. Uh, secondly, um, it was just in relation to uh, the the whole idea that you can't, as Dave explained brilliantly, I thought, have trying to find a deeper meaning for what the plague means or any pandemic means is futile is, and, and, and you end up reading into it things that just are not there. Um, and it's tempting to look for a deeper meaning. But the question then is, is the novel saying that people do change or don't change? Because in some ways, the narrator's vision of the people of Iran at the beginning is disdainful, you know, that they're kind of superficial, all they care about is their, 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 their petty little lives and they're making money and all their clothes and all this. And yet, by the end, he has a different view of them and says, there's more to admire in men than to despise. It's almost like he's going back against his own, he, he, he sees a positive thing in, in people. So even though the stuff on heroism is brilliant, of recognizing that heroism can be a way of man talking up their role and trying to give themselves a great role and that really it's just common decency that we should celebrate rather than over glorifying and, and turning ourselves into saints and so on. It does seem that there are some significant changes in people and so it's a question then of whether that's whether it is, is that what he's saying or not or is he, am I trying to overread things into it but there were contradictions there uh, that, that made me think. And I suppose just, just the, the, the point is, when it's a great work of literature, I mean, I did read it when I was young and I'd never been through a pandemic and it was a great work of literature then. And I thought I understood plagues, but now when you read it, I feel like he's living in the house with me. He's described every single emotion I've been through, every single thing that's happened seemed, it was like prescient gone mad. And I think that in that sense, trying to read into it the Nazi point is, is, is overstated by too many people. It just does seem to me to be an absolutely detailed description of what it's like when a society faces a great natural disaster. And his insights into humanity in relation to that are spot on and timeless. Thank you very much. Uh, next, we have Dennis. Uh, well, a few points. Um, just as a matter of interest, you might be interested in Japan, um, as we speak, the number of copies of uh, this book uh, have been sold is one million. And Daniel Defoe's, you know, um, a journal of the plague in London is selling out, as is Mary Shelley's contagion novel, The Last Man. So I just read an article today which says, what unites all these kind of books and the sellout of all these books on, on plagues and so forth? One, one person described it as a deficit of optimism is what unites the huge sales of these, uh, these books. But my main point, um, I think Anne raises a, an interesting issue um, about the allegory of with with them um, you know fascism in 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 France. I mean the thing that seems most obvious to me uh, about um, 
Camus' uh, relationship with Iran and with uh, Algeria in general is that he was a member of the Pidoir. Um, uh, and uh, there's a certain ambivalence, I think, in his relationship to kind of, uh, you know, dealing with the problem of that he's part of a, an imperialist, French imperialist regime in, 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 in Algeria. Anybody who's seen the Battle of Algiers will know something about what that's like, what that was like. Uh, and uh, so therefore, he's not really able to find the basis to which raise the issue of fascism in Paris, in France, and, and, and Sartre's kind of, you know, criticism. I'm, I'm not a, an expert on Sartre and his criticism of, of this book, but, um, you know, he, he, he would seem to be kind of pointing to the fact that, you know, he's not, he, he's, he's trying to naturalize what is political because he's ambivalent about his own position in, in Algeria and in Iran. And if you look at the book, I mean, there's very few mentions of, you know, how the Arabs, I mean, when they're talking about the shortage of coffins and so forth and the great problem they have and they end up sort of piling bodies onto trains and onto buses and things and he makes the rule sort of makes the point that you know it was a, whatever they were doing to try and deal with you know the coffin situation was a great improvement on the death carts driven by negroes uh, uh, and um, you know you get an, I, I presume when he talks about negroes he's referring to arabs but uh, um you know, I think that ambivalence is what is, strikes more at the heart of why he's kind of, you know, using the rats and the natural thing as an allegory. And just one final thing. Um, I thought it was interesting, the whole discussion, Father Panelou, you know, on, the dis on, on Father Panelou's sermon, where he says, God has sent this down to destroy us. And, um, and, um, and, and, and um, that's the reason why it's happening. Again, an attempt to sort of present a possibility of a natural or some kind of, you know, even supernatural kind of reason for why the plague has come to visit us. And what interested me was there's a kind of contemporary analogue to that today, if you like, where I read that Inger Anderson, who's the UN environmental chief, he described corona pandemic as nature's way of sending us the message, uh, you know, which kind of is an analogue to Dr. Panelou's um, or Father Panelou's um, sermon. Uh, um, and uh, one, one person described this as kind of promiscuous teleology, you know, like a hidden purpose to everything, which I think, you know, he's exploring in that relationship with, uh, with Father Panelou's um, sermon. Thanks, Dennis. Dave, I'll ask you if there's anything else you want to come back in, and then I'll take the other people who want to speak. Yeah, they, um, yeah it's a very, um, a lot of interesting points there. On Claire's point around, you know, whether people change or not, a huge point is that you know humanity is always um, good and has the capacity. In fact, it's almost destined to always want to change. Um, you know, it's a kind of innate quality for Camus that you know humanity needs to rebel against the absurdity of its existence. The problem is that is matched um, by an almost unequal uh, ability to um, uh, to kind of blind ourselves, to um, trick ourselves, to come up with justifications um, that stop us from seeing the real truth partly out of necessity and that's the challenge and that's why the, there is such importance um for the role of memory in this kind of book is that we cannot go around living our lives constantly um in a state of uh, philosophical preparedness for uh, pestilence or war or any of these things but when they strike we must remember some of these kind of lessons the kind of capacity for for delusion the way in which we'll, we will fixate around different issues to avoid having to make peace with the fact that we live in a, you know, a, 
a meaningless universe and it is only our actions that give meaning to it because that puts so much weight on your our actions it's it's terrifying and overwhelming who would not rather prefer um that there is some sense of a kind of moral order and legitimacy amongst there and actually one of his most kind of important points and again that's the thing about the way in which you know it's actually secular society gives them first is that actually sometimes you know the most apparently sophisticated intelligent people are the ones who are most um are easy to kind of to fall into that kind of worldview actually um um and that's you know for those who are kind of getting carried away with the kind of nazi kind of analogies i mean actually you know, the idea of a kind of overly bureaucratic state, which then becomes very quick to violence, um, is certainly not alone to the Vichy government um, or, the, or the Nazi occupation. It's a fairly good um, uh, depiction of many uh, uh, states everywhere, and particularly the French state, um, as it is depicted um, uh, in the outside on a lot of his other works. That's one of his kind of um, uh, sort of big, he's a, a very astute observer um, of, of the French system. Obviously, partly because he's a, you know, writing from the perspective of a kind of colony. Um, you know, that's a really strong part of his identity, and it's a, it's often used as the kind of great gotcha uh, against kind of Camus now in the kind of very enlightened readings that you know he doesn't, he doesn't talk about the Arab situation. Um, you know, which and this is a man who you probably was the most prominent, you know, for a long time was one of the most prominent journalists speaking about the uh, position of the Arabs in Algerian society and a supporter of um, Algerian self determination but not independence obviously that became a big political um uh, separation for him he, he supported actually you know equal rights for um uh, you know kind of algerians within france for a long time but then shied away from supporting full independence partly actually because he was more motivated by some practical concerns partly by his own admission he was morally a, a bit of a coward because he was more concerned about the safety of his mum than he was about the you know overall safety of the people and he was honest with himself to admit that he had a problem with that the implications of the violence that would be unleashed um, and required but he often when he's talking politically about things Camus you always have to take him a little bit you know as a as a product of his own time he was kind of more of a you know, journalist than an artist he viewed himself rather than dealing in huge um, philosophical theories um, uh, to live by and he always asks you to to challenge him on his own basis he's one of the great question uh, askers of um uh you know the kind of philosophical tradition i think that he's far more interested in kind of critiquing uh, some of these topics than a um than he is necessarily you know telling you what you should be doing and how you should be uh you know what path you should be taking thank you uh, therese i read this when i was a teenager a very long time ago and um, not being able to get hold of a copy, I was listening to it on being read on YouTube. And a bit like Claire, I think, I found it quite disturbing in terms of how prophetic and contemporary and relevant it is. And um, unfortunately, I expect it to be relevant in the future as well. I find the political allegory interpretation quite alienating and quite... Um, sort of ideological. I don't really see it as being there. Um, I see it more on the level of social psychology. But there were so many um, spooky parallels with the current situation. Um, the way peppermint lozenges sold out in the shops, um, paralleling the way mint um, is one of the um, purported remedies um, in the current situation. 
um, the only thing that struck me as being completely obvious was the way people were saying that um, the plague would get worse in the summer, whereas we were told that the plague might be, get better, you know, our plague might get better in the summer. There were so many details that were uh, echoed in the current time. Someone says early on something like, we're all in the same boat um, in Iran, which um, a lot of people seem to have said in the current situation, but it seems to be generally people who are, who are in good boats who are saying that. Um, unlike, um, and I think it was the head of the medical association, um, Dr. Richard, who said, oh, it's a false alarm, it's a false alarm. And, you know, we heard quite a few people saying that in the current epidemic. Um, I see the book more as a, an analysis of what has led up to this. The um, line about how these things descend from nowhere was written what over 70 years ago and it was written about a place and time when there was no germ theory so it's easier to understand the role of religion in that time for instance but it's interesting to see how similar things have been happening in the current situation and i don't know how many clerics have died saying um you know, we're protected by God as long as we have faith, we're protected by God. And um, the Spanish flu, for instance, was propagated quite a lot in um, Italy and Spain by clerics urging people to attend church. And in the current situation, um, half of the outbreak in South Korea, I believe, was in a associated with the church. So, you know, I see it quite differently. I see the book as a kind of an implicit plea for clear-sightedness. And clear-sightedness is mentioned at times, that people don't want to see what is going on. How many, you know, rats were dying before anyone, sort of, very many people anyway, um, took account of the fact that something very unusual was going on. And I think it depicts a situation then as now, where Cassandras uh, are made out of the insightful. How many people have been warning and writing books in recent years saying we are converging on a pandemic? This is not something that landed on us out of the blue. Thank you. Uh, Sabine. Um, yes, I mean, there's, um, I also find this a really um, exciting discussion and I, I, you know, a great introduction. There's another person in the book who I don't know if he's been mentioned in the discussion yet because I haven't been able to understand everything, but um, that's uh, grand. And that perhaps links a bit to what you said, Dave, about the sophisticated people who are not necessarily the best set. So we've got, you know, um, Richard, the, the, the really well um, acknowledged doctor, respected doctor who, who, um, you know, shows himself to be completely hopeless, certainly at the beginning, doesn't know what to do, you know, makes the wrong decisions. And yet you've got somebody like Grant, who's a bit of a loser, you know, he hadn't, he hasn't really made, uh, made uh, a great impact uh, in, in his life. He, he, he has a terrible job. He was too shy to speak to his boss. Um, he's an awful uh, author, you know, he thinks about every word he writes. And he's quite important, you know, he plays, uh, he, he helps. So even he can play his role. 
And I was wondering how that maybe links to the question of heroes, because at one point in the book, um, uh, it said that, you know, you don't want to put the heroes too high up because it would make everybody else look too bad. And then there is this guy, Grant, who sort of just falls into his role more by coincidence because he knows Dr. Rieu and he just, that's just something he can do. And so my question is, is it perhaps as simple as giving people the chance to just do the right thing and, and, and to just, you know, to just become the kind of heroes they then become, you know, to give people the opportunity. I mean, he's not, he's, he's not, you know, he does the right thing in, in relation to that, um, to the, to the, to the criminal who, who commits suicide. So he calls the doctor then, you know, and he opens the door. So he's a person who obviously, you know, ha, you know, has good instincts and knows what the right thing is, but he does need the whole setup. He needs Dr. Rieu to kind of say, look, we can, we, we need you, you know, you can help us with this. And then he does it. So it's all down to opportunity in the end, and a chance. Connor next. Yeah, I was interested in um, one of the observations that Pamela had made earlier, the sort of connections with the myth of Sisyphus. Um, this idea that uh, the plague had run its course, but we went on living by its standards. Uh, so the notion that, you know, this plague is living on and we're in some sort of eternal present. Um, and I think maybe that linked to something that uh, David had said about the importance of memory. What, what I was sort of thinking about and thinking through the, the current conditions in, in which we find ourselves is how much, you know, whenever this, whenever we inevitably emerge from whatever it is that we're in now, uh, how much of the standards that we've been uh, living in for, you know, the last month and a half or so, how much those will remain, but also does it give us pause for thought for uh, the way that we were living before? Um, it's interesting that, and again, in connection to the myth of Sisyphus, not in the in the book version. It's not in the novel, but it's actually in one of the movie adaptations of of the plague, where Taru's character towards the end says, "Back to work, back to work. Let's get pushing that boulder up the hill." I'm just wondering how much of that will apply uh, in the future as we move forward, given the uh, uh, the lessons that we learn from from our current experiences. Uh, Jacob. Yeah, thanks. Uh, just one of the things that sort of really struck me through this conversation is that. I mean, thinking of it as an allegory, I think, is completely the wrong, wrong starting point. At best, it's kind of a metaphor, um, which is obviously the lot. Allegories you just, like in Animal Farm, which we discussed last week, I don't particularly like, precisely because it's an allegory, where you just replace one thing with another thing, word for word. And, and allegories, like, say, Plato's allegory of the cave, they have this, like, didactic function. They want you to think a certain thing. And you get the sense that, say, Sartre and all the others, they'd have loved Camus to have write an written an allegory because then it would have been like simple for people to understand and everyone could have got their moral and sort of tried off happily with this. Whereas for Camus, there are no certainties. He says towards the end, the only certainties have uh, love, suffering and exile. Um, and on the basis of that, you can't like, build a sort of coherent, positive, didactic, moral or political theory. You can only just say, well, look, we begin with some experiences and how we respond to that is just completely up to us. There's like nothing preordained in the stars about it. And that's, that's like why it can't be an allegory. And that's why he's, he's trying to just understand what people might do faced with those certainties that we uh, approach in different ways in different historical moments. And that's why it can be an enduring work of literature that will say something in loads of different historical situations, precisely because it doesn't presume any answers. Thank you. Uh, Richard? Yeah, when you announced that this was the, uh, the reading uh, two weeks ago, I... I didn't know really what to expect, apart from like um, a lot of people in the discussion, I had read some Camus when I was 15. 
Um, so I I had read The Outsider, uh, quickly followed by um, Sartre's The uh, Nausea. So I was really piling it on thick uh, when I was uh, quite young. So I suppose I had a sense of what it might be, but I, I've really been knocked out by it um, in terms of the storytelling. And um, I love the intertwining between the narrator and the moral centre of the novel, uh, Dr. Rue. I think it's incredibly clever and possibly leads us in a direction that Camus wants to take us in, uh, which is that ability to be able to uh, go in on uh, detail in uh, human emotions and then be able to stand outside of ourselves. And it's that ability uh, that is the metaphor of the plague uh, that he um, illustrates really well. If I could just say um, a little bit uh, from uh, read a little bit from the book, the, th the word plague had just been uttered for the first time. At this stage of the narrative, with Dr. Barn uh, Bernard Roux standing at his window, the narrator may perhaps be allowed to justify the doctor's uncertainty and surprise since, with very slight differences, his reaction was the same as that of the great majority of our townsfolk. Now I hate Kindle with a vengeance because I haven't got a page number, but I know that I'm 12% through the story at this point. And you've got this lovely intertwining between the narrator and our, our character who doesn't know how to react to the things around him, but there's this sense that it is something more serious, uh, the plague, but he is responding the way that his other people in the town are also responding to it. Which links on to um, a final point about how he encapsulates this um, feeling so well when he says, thus the first thing that the plague brought to our town was exile, that we, our sort of separation from each other led us to be exiled inside our own town, which I think, I think is a, 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 a really powerful, uh, um, uh, powerful image. Thanks, Richard. Fiona? Um, yeah, I just one thing that struck me really, and I haven't really got anything very profound to say about it, was just the importance of human interaction that I found quite touching throughout the book, and especially in the present context where we're so used to everybody standing two meters apart from each other. And so every time he mentioned that they they uh, they just got together, and he says, "Oh, you're going to visit so and so. Well, can I can I come along with you? Yeah, yeah, come along." And it just felt so weird in the in the current situation to be hearing things like that going on during. The plague and it was just um it was quite a, a nice uh thing to read that the way that they really needed that that interaction they needed to chat to each other and, and bounce off each other and talk about the situation to make sense of it and especially when each of them are suffering some kind of separation from their loved ones that you find these characters who've otherwise not necessarily got tons in common with each other finding a way of of really um uh, finding comfort in each other's company and just how important uh, that always is and how no matter how different they are from each other there is always something to be learned from that um, uh, so the doctor can always learn something from Grand and somebody else can always learn something from somebody else and I found that uh, particularly now just just quite the, that sort of kindness that they show towards each other quite touching and, and, and quite significant. I have to say, I felt, I agreed with that from reading it and the, 
you know, they're all getting together, going to the theatre, doing all these things that yeah. obviously now they're talking about doing in years' time. And in the way that, as Connor was asking, afterwards, things all, you assume, the way it's presented is things just carry on as they were before without even sort of really thinking about it, should that happen. Whereas now, the discussion is how things can't carry on as they were before, but how there has to be a new normal. And there's a lot of very similarities there, but immediately there's a lot of things that are different, which have come out in some of the discussion, particularly on the chat, actually. But Yeah, I was more um, sad in the, when I was reading the book is about the feeling of there's no hope, no future, and forgetting about the past. You know, so I'm just thinking, if we go on any further with the coronavirus, are we going to feel the same way? Yeah, thank you very much. Dave, do you want to round off the discussion? Thank you very much. Yeah, I, um, yeah, and it's an excellent point uh, by Jacob I, um, about the kind of allegory um, uh, kind of issue, and it's a, it's a big problem I have. And I think why it becomes really difficult when people start to apply, um, you know, more contemporary kind of readings sort of to it in terms of, uh, you know, the ones that I kind of cited earlier, you know, around kind of climate change. And you could do a kind of version of this around man-made climate change, but it's probably not making the point that people would like it to make around here, because actually the sort of the metaphor falls down when you apply it to the rest of um, the novel. It can't be sort of stretched um, that much. But also what is quite important about the kind of falling out you had and the points he's making here is that no one really believed the, you know, to, to challenge the kind of French nation to, nobody actually thought the French resistance is the thing that brought down the Nazis. Um, you know, the kind of, the fight that they showed, enormous bravery, enormous kind of significance, um, but it has to be contextualised within that was, in a way, not the significant decisive factor. But he he's interested in exploring what does that prove about kind of human nature? Why do people uh, um, choose to, to act and to not act um, and to choose evil? Um, he sees those as different categories. And so he contextualises um, some people's choices of saying, actually, maybe the heroes weren't as important overall. And that's why Grand is such an important figure because, you know, although it's a wonderful kind of literary in joke about him endlessly writing this kind of first line of this kind of novel, um, but also the most striking thing about him above all else is that he never gives in to despair or kind of hatred, you know, kind of hatred for his fellow man. He's lived this utterly unremarkable life where he has kind of generally been failed and kind of abandoned by all the kind of people that he would look to for authority figures for you know for kind of for love for everything partly because of his own inaction um it's true but actually to kind of to borrow the phrase from kind of larkin you know what will survive of him is love the thing that actually is still he is so obsessed with with that line from his novel is that he wants to find the way of memorializing how it felt when he first met his his wife and he can never find the words to do that and that is the thing that he kind of is most kind of driven by despite the temptation to give in to the despair and on the myth of sisyphus point you know it is um you know important to remember that you know it's a it's a sort of it's a sort of metaphor man is a lot more free of sisyphus but then uh, you know sisyphus was um but we are continually facing the same kind of sort of questions by dint of our hum humanity by the fact that we are all mortal um that we are still always going to be living in a meaningless universe um, and terrible things will still event even in a great future of fully automated luxury communism um, plagues will probably still visit upon us and we don't know how to respond to it we do make progress i'd actually much rather be living um, in the age of trying to fight coronavirus than i would the bubonic plague um, i think we are doing slightly better in that in fact 
you know, a, a good proof of that kind of progress is how shocked we are by how much this kind of book speaks to our time. Um, you know, for a mid-century reader, you know, the idea of kind of death and disease being visited uh, would not be that sort of shocking. Uh, what's the danger of what happens is that we forget the lessons that we learn. Um, that is what the greatest kind of challenge is. And Camus is the optimist. Camus, you know, really sort of thinks that we will find ways of doing this. It's in our capacity to do this and because we will continually rebel. But that really we will only start to, to move towards that if we can find a new way of being, which is one of you know, love and solidarity, um, rather than one that is based around you know, the individual, whether it's the individual hero or the kind of, you know, the sort of individual villain. Our way of overcoming evil is finding a way collectively for the good to win out. And I think that's the most important um, message that we can, we can take through. Thanks to Dave and Jeff for that book club. If you'd like to attend any of our other events, forums or salons run by the Academy of Ideas, head to our website at academyofideas.org.uk. And if you're enjoying the work that we're doing, why not help support us to do it through these strange times? Head to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. See you again soon.